Well, we are continuing, since we are still in summer for a few more weeks, we are continuing our summer psalms. This morning, our psalm is Psalm 91. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I would encourage you to open them up and follow along. It's a somewhat lengthy psalm, and, and we're going to be looking at, at various words and phrases, and uh, so it'd be nice not only for you, not only to follow along as I read, but also to keep your Bibles open as I go through and preach this text. If you don't have a Bible or don't own one, uh, if you look in the seat in front of you, underneath you'll find a Bible there, and you'll find our passage on page 497. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from, his, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. <clears throat> Psalm 91 is what Biblical scholars and theologians refer to as a psalm of trust, a psalm of trust. There are various psalms of trust throughout the Bible. The most well-known psalm of trust is no doubt Psalm 23, which is one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible, of course. Psalms of trust are psalms that, uh, unlike psalms of lament, a psalm of lament might express trust in God as well, but a song of lament primarily focuses on the actual sorrow or the affliction that the psalmist is dealing with. With a psalm of trust, the affliction is, or, or the thing that might be uh, uh, threatening you is kind of in the background. In a psalm of trust, the psalmist is expressing this sort of settled confidence in the God of the Bible, who despite trials and hardships in life, provides Real protection provides a true antidote to worry or anxiety. Psalm 91, as I said, is, and as you can see, is, is, is sort of lengthy, but 
the pronouns in the psalm divide it nicely for us. We have in there, if we just read it closely, a built-in structure for the psalm. Verse 1 is kind of a summary statement for the entire psalm. What what is Psalm 91 about? That's verse 1. Verse 2, we now have the personal faith, a statement of personal faith given by the psalmist himself. We see there, I, my, and I. And then in verses 3 through 13, the the bulk of the, the psalm, you see that the pronoun then is switched to you. 3 through 13 is a promise given to the reader, to one who's reading the psalm, a promise given by the psalmist who already has faith in God as a promise of what faith in God will grant to you if you trust in Him. And then at the end of this psalm in verses 14 to 16, you see again the the pronoun switches to I, only now it's not the psalmist speaking, it is God. The final word in the psalm is, is a declaration by God of the divine provision that He gives to the one who trusts in Him. So verse 1 begins with this general statement, a summary statement for the whole psalm. Verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, there are two different titles given to God in this first verse. You see that God is referred to here as Most High and also the Almighty. The the Hebrew word, and and if you've been in in church long enough or or you've heard Christian songs long enough, you've, you've probably heard of these words The Hebrew word that's translated most high is the Hebrew word Elyon. Elyon is a title for God. It is a title that expresses God's universal rule, His supremacy over all things. There is nothing in the universe outside of His dominion and His rule. That's what it means that God is the most high. The Almighty is the Hebrew word Shaddai. Shaddai is another title. It highlights God's power. It's one thing for someone to have rule uh, in name only. It's another thing for someone to have rule and have the power to exercise that rule. God has both. He is the highest, most supreme of all. He is the only creator, and he has the power and the omnipotence to rule all things. No one can stand against his dominion. Conversely, we see here in verse 1, two metaphors, metaphors used for uh, protection and security, shelter and shadow, shelter and shadow. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, shadow in Tolkien's work doesn't seem like a, a very happy or good place to be. But here, shadow is a place of security. And we say, well, why is that? Well, for those who lived in the deserts of the ancient Near East, who lived in the sweltering, burning sun, shade 
or shadow could be the difference between life and death. We're, we're, you know, we don't, we're not used to that because we're used to indoor uh, buildings with air conditioning. But I can say that last weekend, uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, we had to be at the swim championships, the final swim championships for our children at Wedgwood Swim Club. And it was so hot, so sweltering, especially in the sun, that any chance that you could get in shade almost felt like it kept you from dying. I mean, it was that, it was that hot. And for, for the first time in a long time, I, I felt like what this psalmist is talking about. Now, there are huge promises given in this psalm, which I just read, which you heard. Some of these promises defy belief. But we have to understand here, just from verse 1, that these promises are not for everyone. Not everyone can claim these promises. These promises that we have in this psalm are only for those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. They're only for those who abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I mean, what does it mean to dwell somewhere? Dwell. Oxford Dictionary calls a dwelling a house or an apartment or another place of residence. In other words, you don't dwell in the Starbucks around the corner, even if you work there every day. Even if you spend hours on your computer in there, you don't dwell there. You don't dwell in a tent that you use for a week's camping trip. A dwelling is where you live your life. A dwelling is where you go back to day after day after day. It is those who dwell in the Almighty. It is those who abide. The Hebrew word for abide means rest. See, every single one of us in this room dwells somewhere. I don't mean physically. I'm sure we all dwell somewhere. There's some home or apartment or residence somewhere that you live physically. I mean that spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, you dwell somewhere. Every single one of us finds shelter in something or someone. Every single one of us finds our rest in something or someone. But you see, what the psalmist is saying is that if your shelter is not the Most High God, if it's something other than Him, then these promises are not for you. It kind of reminded me, as I read, of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, you see, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who, who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The promises in this psalm are for those who have true saving faith in the true God of the Bible. And that's exactly what the psalmist proclaims in verse 2. He emphatically stresses his own faith, his own trust in this God. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, 
my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Here again, we see God referenced two other ways. Lord, which as I've mentioned many times before, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's His name. Yahweh is not a title. It is His covenant name. It highlights God's self-existence, His self-sufficiency. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. If God needed something from someone else, He couldn't be the all-sufficient God. There's never a time when God needs anything from anyone. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. And we also see the word God, my God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is a title expressing God as the creator of all. We find, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created, and God said, God said, that's the word Elohim. He is the creator God. And there are, conversely, two more metaphors given of protection and security. God is my refuge, a shelter from the storm. God is my fortress, a mountain stronghold. So in these first two verses of Psalm 91, we have four different titles or names given to God. And in addition to those four names and titles, four different words or metaphors for God as our security and our protection. But whereas in verse 1, we're given just a general summary statement of fact for those who put their faith in the sovereign God, in verse 2, we have expressed the fact that the psalmist does indeed have faith. Notice how many times he uses the word my. God is not just a God out there somewhere that you acknowledge intellectually. God is my refuge. God is my fortress. He is my God, the one in whom I trust. You see, what are you trusting in this morning? Just as there's a a place where you dwell for safety and security, there is something or someone that you put your ultimate trust in. We all have something. What is it? What are you trusting this morning as you sit here to be your refuge and your fortress in a world of trouble? I think that most of us, if if we're believers, we would vocally say, I put my trust in God. I put my trust in the Most High. And yet, if you're like me, when trouble arises in the week, it's so easy to run to something else for your security and your trust. Who are you trusting in? I guarantee you're trusting in something. The president? Congress? Government in general? Your bank account, your job, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your children. See, once you start asking these questions and you get specific about it, when you really analyze what it is you're putting your trust in, what it is that you're trusting to be your fortress and your security, then you quickly realize that if the person or the thing in whom you have placed ultimate faith is not the self-existent, self-sufficient creator who is omnipotent and has sovereign rule over everything, then what you are trusting cannot ultimately provide you with complete and total protection in a world of trouble. Because whatever you're 
trusting in is part of this world of trouble. When I was in Israel, uh, I visited Masada. Masada is a uh, mountaintop fortress that was built by Herod uh, as a place of security, as a place of refuge. And visiting there, uh, it would seem that if you were one of the few lucky ones that got to get into Masada, if an attack happened in Israel, you would be safe for decades. There were massive storerooms full of food. There was an aqueduct that brought fresh water. You wouldn't even have to leave there. You could wait till your enemies die and then leave and be free. And I'm sure a lot of Jews thought that until the Romans invaded in 70 AD. And there were some Jews that fled to the top and got into the fortress of Masada, trusting in it to save them. Well, fast forward about two or three months, and 15,000 Roman soldiers who camped at the bottom of Masada laid siege to it, built a massive ramp, and after about two or three months, scaled the entire fortress with a battering ram and entered the fortress. And rather than be killed or crucified by the Romans, all of the Jews in that fortress signed a massive suicide pact so that when the Romans scaled the walls and went in, they found no one alive. Everyone was dead. Beginning at verse 3, we see now how the promises uh, are made to you. The, the psalmist now turns his attention on you, you and me, if, if we would but find our dwelling and rest in, in God. God, he says, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That's the trap of the bird catcher, in other words. He will deliver you from deadly pestilence. The imagery that the psalmist uh, gives to you is that you are basically a defenseless bird, a baby bird in a nest. And that given how defenseless and harmless and weak you are, you need God's protection in this life. You need protection from all kinds of things. You need protection from human evils, and you need protection from natural disasters. And God himself here is depicted at, as a nurturing mother bird, like an eagle, who lovingly and protectively covers her, her eggs and her babies as they sit helplessly in the nest with huge and all-powerful wings. I saw a video this week as I was working in a sermon, uh, a video of this, it was in India, and uh, it was posted, I think it was on Twitter, but it was a, a video that someone took of a mother bird covering her eggs and this huge tractor rolled over, uh, was, was Coming towards her, first of all, you could see her looking and, and covering the bird, and then it got closer and closer, and then it just started rolling past, and so whoever was driving the tractor obviously was like straddling the bird, trying not to kill it, but as the tractor came nearer, there were, you know, there was the gears and everything under the tractor, and it got to the point where the gear was just going to, you know, cut the head off the, bir the mother bird, uh, kill it, and, and the bird didn't, didn't move. The mother stayed there covering her babies, uh, waiting to die. 
if necessary, in order to protect her young. And I don't know what the driver of the tractor did, but somehow he, let, like, I don't know if it was like hydraulic or something, but he lifted it up and went over and dropped it back down so the bird lived. But, uh, but it was amazing to see the bird not move an inch. A mother bird is, is loving and nurturing, but, but you see here in this, in this kind of metaphor for God's protection that, that God is nurturing and loving like a mother bird, but, but the psalmist doesn't stop there because a mother bird is not strong. God is nurturing, but he's not fragile. So the psalmist combines the tenderness and care of the mother bird with the unbreakable strength of the soldier's shield or a stone wall of defense. See, when God protects you with his love and his power, you are completely covered. Notice how in verses five to six, how comprehensively covered is this person who finds his or her security in God. Notice that you're protected from every kind of enemy. You're protected from fear. You're protected from arrows. You're protected from pestilence and destruction. And you are protected at all times, day or night. In other words, if your trust is in God, you are not just well protected, you are ever protected. If you are trusting in the self-sufficient, self-existent, all-powerful, sovereign creator who rules over every atom in the universe, then there is never a time and never a place and never a situation where you have to fear. You don't have to fear because there will never be a time, there will never be a place, there will never be a situation that the all-powerful, self-sufficient, self-existent God who reigns will look at and say, I can't help you anymore. This is too much for me. You've finally gotten yourself into a situation that I can't overpower. Never. Notice what the psalmist says in verses 7 to 8. These are almost unbelievable promises. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Notice what the psalmist is saying here. See, he's, he's saying 10,000 might fall at your side or at your right hand. Nevertheless, it, whatever is causing the others to die, will not come near you. These are promises that seem to, again, defy belief and logic. Because notice the psalmist is not saying, though thousands of other people are dying in a war halfway around the world, you will be safe because of where you live. He's, he's not saying, though, though thousands and ten thousands might be dying of a plague on another continent somewhere, God will protect you and you'll be safe. No, he's, he's not saying that. He's saying the war is happening right next to you. The plague is killing off all those around you. This thing, whatever it is, is killing your next door neighbor. But it won't touch you. See, God's sovereign protection, it works with pinpoint precision. It keeps people alive who through all outward appearances should be dead. In fact, if you see here, you're, you're even safe when the disaster that comes is due to the direct judgment of God himself. 
If you're trusting in God, even God's judgment will not harm you. Notice uh, what he says. You will, you will only look and see the punishment of the wicked. We see this kind of thing happen all throughout Scripture. Two uh, very well-known episodes of this kind of protection is Noah's Ark, for one, where Noah, just as sinful as the other people around him, just as much deserving judgment as the other people around him, nevertheless found grace in the eyes of God. And though every other person in the world died from the judgment of God, yet God spared Noah and his family. We see this in the Exodus, where the people of Israel were saved from the plagues that killed the Egyptian livestock. They were saved from the angel of death that killed the firstborn, even though they too were sinners. And God reminded them, you're no better than the Egyptians, but by my grace and mercy, I will save you. Notice verses 9 and 10, basically a summary statement of everything he's just said. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who's my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. Now, the psalm was already kind of difficult to to, to really grasp as I read it. I mean, these are amazing promises. But when I got to verses 9 and 10, I really struggled for a while. Because when you read verses 9 and 10, it seems to be saying that if you have faith in God, you will never suffer. It seems like it may be saying that. And as I wrestled with it, I came away with these points. First of all, God... If he is who the Bible says he is, and he is, God obviously can keep his people from all harm if he wants. And we see this in Scripture, don't we? Uh, if you were here during this, the series uh, that we were in, in Daniel, uh, you see it in the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, God completely by his sovereign protection kept both all of those men completely safe from all harm. There are examples, uh, countless examples, all throughout the Bible, not just those where God miraculously and completely protects his people from all harm. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. They were so completely protected. If you read biographies uh, of go back and read church history books or biographies from missionaries and things like that, you'll find all throughout statements where they have no idea how they got out of this thing other than that God's miraculous provision of security got them out. I bet you, if after the service today, you turn to the person sitting next to you and you ask them, has there ever been a time in your life where you have sensed or seen the miraculous provision or protection of God in your life, I bet you pretty much everyone here would be able to say, yes, I have seen that in my life. There are two instances in my own life where I can't delve into all of this today. There's not enough time. If you come to theology group today, maybe, maybe I'll share it with you. <laughs> there are two examples in my own life where God literally suspended the laws of nature to save me to save me from probably death. Certainly death in one instance, probably death in the other. That's number one. God can and does 
sometimes keep his people from all harm. But the second point is obviously God doesn't keep his people from all harm all the time. All you need to do is read through the Bible one time to see that if there's one thing we see in the Bible is, yes, God does miraculously protect his people from all harm sometimes, but the other thing we see is that everyone who trusts in God suffers in this life. There's not one person in the Bible who trusts in God who does not experience suffering. Some of us uh, unfortunately, we'll use this kind of verse, this kind of section here in Psalm 91 to say that, that if you suffer, you obviously don't have enough faith. If you suffer, you must have sinned somewhere along the lines. That's what Job's friends said to him when he was suffering. But all we need to do is look at the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews. And what we see in this hall of faith is both amazing deliverance for God's people and heartbreaking suffering for God's people. By faith, Hebrews says, God's people stopped the mouths of lions. By faith, God's people quenched the power of fire. By faith, God's people escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, God's people put foreign armies to flight. By faith, God's people were tortured. By faith, God's people were mocked. By faith, God's people were imprisoned. By faith, God's people were sawn in two. That's probably the prophet Isaiah. So scripture itself insists that we not read Psalm 91 as saying, if you put your trust in God, he will always deliver you from all harm, no matter what. But you see, we don't even need to look at the rest of the Bible to discover that. Psalm 91 teaches us this very thing. After the verse that we just read that seems to suggest, verse 10, that no evil will ever befall you, no plague will ever come near you, ever, we read in verses 14 to 16 when God finally speaks, listen to these words, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. And notice, I will be with him in trouble. Psalm 91 expects God's people to face trouble. The point that Psalm 91 is after is this, whether God miraculously delivers the believer like he did for Daniel, or whether he doesn't like he did for Isaiah, he promises that he will be with us. God promises that he will either deliver us from the trial or through the trial, but either way, if we trust in him, he will deliver us. Isaiah 43 says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What does that mean? Well, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I give Egypt as your ransom because you are precious in my eyes and I love you. Jesus in Luke 21, he's speaking to those who trust in him. He's speaking to believers. And he says, you are going to face famines and pestilence. You are going to go through natural disasters. You are going to be arrested. You are going to face charges before courts and kings. You will be betrayed by family members and friends. You will even be put to death. And then Jesus sums up everything he just said with this, but not a hair on your head will perish. How can he say both things? All of these things are going to happen to you, and yet not a hair on your head will perish. Well, that's because Psalm 91 is ultimately about our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 91 actually contains the only Bible verse that Satan ever quoted. Like the rest of the Psalms and the whole Old Testament, Psalm 91 applies to Jesus. The moment that he was born... And for every second of his life thereafter, Jesus found his shelter in the Most High like no one else ever had. There was never a time when Jesus turned to anything else for his security. His entire life, he trusted in his Father. No one took refuge in God like Jesus. No one loved God like Jesus. No one knew God like Jesus. No one called on God like Jesus. And Satan knew that. And that's why when he came to Jesus in the wilderness, he knew that if Psalm 91 applied to anyone, it was to the Son of God. So when he came to Jesus in the wilderness, it says the devil took him to the holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple, took him as close to God as he could possibly be. He said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If there was ever a person who lived who the angels were commanded to protect. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Jesus respond? Well, notice he doesn't deny that Psalm 91 applies to him. He agrees with Satan that it does. He accepts that Satan has correctly identified him as the Son of God and Messiah. He rejects Satan's application of the psalm. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus trusted God, his Father, perfectly. Satan wanted Jesus to turn trust God and to test God. He wanted Jesus to turn faith into presumption. Jesus didn't fall for it. It's interesting to me that in quoting Psalm 91, Satan stopped at verse 12. Why didn't he quote verse 13? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. See, what ultimately was Satan trying to get Christ to do? 
When he came to Christ in the wilderness, he was trying to tempt him to do something. What was it? Remember when he tempted to give Christ all the kingdoms of the world, he was trying to get Christ to abandon his mission. He tried everything he could. He was tempting Jesus to gain the kingdom without the cross. He was tempting Jesus to get the world without suffering for it. Why? Why did Satan want him to abandon his mission so much? It's because he was there when the mission was first given. He was there in the garden when he heard that the mission of the seed was to have his heel bruised and in doing so would crush the head of the serpent. And that's what verse 13 says. Verse 13 says that the Messiah will crush the lion and the serpent. Well, we hear about the serpent. What about the lion? What else has Satan referred to in Scripture? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Is it any wonder, then, that Satan didn't want any part of quoting Psalm 91, 13? <laughs> see, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see just how perfectly Psalm 91 applies to Jesus. You'll see that Jesus was miraculously and divinely protected his entire life. How many times did the schemes of men try to, by their own schemes, arrest him and kill him before his time? How many times did he slip through and escape? How many times did Jesus walk up to the leper who no one else would get within 30 feet of and touch him with no fear of getting the disease? Nothing could touch him. Over and over and over again, he was protected. No one, not Herod, not the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, not the Romans, nothing, not the storms at sea, not the lepers' contagious diseases, no one and nothing could take his life from him until he decided. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. You see, even, even on that day, even on the day that he did lay it down, he said, right now I could command legions of angels to rescue me, just like Psalm 91 says. But he didn't. He fulfilled his mission. He went to the cross. You know, it's interesting. We see angelic activity all over Jesus' life. Angels burst onto the scene when he was born. Angels appeared at his resurrection. They were there when he ascended. They were there when he faced temptation in the wilderness. And there was even one present and strengthening him when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. Angels were always around the Lord. The only time it seems they weren't was when he hung alone on the cross. Look again at verses 14 to 16. You see, all of this in verses 14 to 16 was perfectly true of Jesus until it wasn't. See, 
Because he, the Messiah, holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Until the cross, when the Father didn't deliver him. Until the cross, when the Father didn't protect him. When his Father didn't answer him. When his Father was not with him in trouble. When his Father did not rescue him. And you see, when you read Jesus' words on the cross, despite being utterly forsaken by his Father, despite bearing the full wrath from his Father, Jesus never stopped trusting his Father. Even when he was suffering the wrath of God and drinking it to the dregs, he said, my God, my God. When it was all over, when he had fulfilled his mission, he said, it is finished. And now, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He and his Father were one again. And now, his victory is applied to us. We get to travel in the train of his robe. How is it that we can be put to death even and yet not a hair on our head be per perish? Because whoever believes in me will never die. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for this day. We are so thankful for this psalm. We are thankful for the many promises that it gives to us in Christ. And we are thankful that he gave up these promises for those hours on the cross so that we might be th have them and have them for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that you would impress this truth upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.